Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Joanna Sliwa. She is a historian at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany in New York City. I am here today to engage in a dialogue with her about her new book, Jewish Childhood in Krakow, A Microhistory of the Holocaust, published by Rutgers University Press 2021. Joanna, it is my humble honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak with you, and um, thank you for your interest in my book. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up, and what formative events in your life inspired you to study the Holocaust and become a historian? I am a historian of the Holocaust and Polish Jewish history. I received my degree in history from the Strassler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. My professional work has been in Jewish institutions and organizations, as well as teaching at universities. As you mentioned, I work as historian at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, in short, the Claims Conference. This is the only Jewish NGO that negotiates with the German government to ensure a measure of justice for Jewish Holocaust survivors. There are several paths, reasons that converged uh, leading me to um, become a Holocaust historian. And I will focus on one that I think also highlights the impact that professors have on students and on their professional paths. As an undergraduate, I enrolled in a course on the Holocaust in literature and film. And I was hoping to learn in a more structured way what children such as my own grandfather experienced. And the first book, Uh, that my professor recommended that I read was a book by historian Deborah Dwork. The title of the book, uh, Children with a Star, Jewish Youth in Nazi Europe, uh, is a trailblazing book that tells Holocaust history through the voices of Jewish children. Dwork paved the way for the use of oral histories of child survivors as a legitimate source of historical research about the Holocaust. And this study was profoundly influenced uh, my thinking about the Holocaust, and it inspired me to continue researching the topic of Jewish children. Later on, I was um, very fortunate to be mentored by Professor Dwork during my doctoral studies and beyond. What attracted you to this specific topic? My book focuses on the history of Kraków, Poland, during the Holocaust through the recollections and experiences of Jewish children. Kraków was an an important place of uh, Jewish life in pre-war Poland. It had the fourth largest Jewish population in Poland on the eve of World War II. During the war, Kraków became the capital city of the general government or German-occupied Poland. It was also the capital of the Kraków district 
one of four districts, and from August 1941, one of five districts. This was the location of a ghetto and of the Poishov camp. For many years after World War II, the former pre-war Jewish district of Kazimierz was sort of a marginalized neighborhood of Krakow. Today, it is a thriving cultural and entertainment scene and serves as the center of Jewish communal and religious life in Krakow. The emergence of interest in Jewish and Holocaust history in Krakow was connected to the hugely popular film directed by Steven Spielberg, Schindler, Schindler's List, that came out in 1993. So we have all these major events, the interest, the other uh, film, and still there has been very little written, especially in English, about the history of Krakow during the Holocaust. And these are some of the reasons that attracted me uh, to this topic. What was your research process like? Is there anything about the story behind this book that you feel comfortable sharing? What did you learn about yourself during the research writing and editing process that went into this? The research process for the, for the book took me to Poland, Israel, and the, U and the US uh, to state and private archives uh, and to archives of religious institutions, Catholic institutions. My records were in German, Polish, Yiddish, Hebrew, English. And I learned very quickly that in order to research children's experiences, required, required casting a wide net to capture individual stories and responses to persecution by both adults and children. And it required looking into what was written about children at the time and after the war. The research process involved uh, visiting archives, obviously, but also an extensive network of individuals who shared an interest in my topic, who connected me to, uh, to other people, and who brought sources uh, to my attention. What message do you hope your book will convey to your readers? The message that I hope to convey to the readers of the book is that looking at ch Jewish children's experiences during the Holocaust and the children's recollections allows us to gain a deeper understanding of what childhood looked like during the Holocaust and how that was in and how that has influenced survivors later in their lives. My aim in the book was to discuss the complexity of Jewish children's lives during the Holocaust, uh, the children's coping mechanisms, their survival strategies, their agency, but also to look at the role of adults in shaping children's experiences. Another main message that I hope to convey is that by Focusing on Jewish children's lives, we can get a fuller picture of how the Holocaust evolved in Krakow and how the changing functions of the city shaped the experiences of Jews. Can you describe the photograph 
on the book's cover. Why did you choose this particular front cover image? What does it mean? I see my book as composed of this tapestry of individual histories of Jewish children that form a collective picture of what Jewish childhood entailed during the Holocaust. The, ava the available source base determines uh, whose histories get to be told. Um, and there are many stories that await to be discovered and many others that will not get to be told because of the lack of or insufficient information. So photographs offer a visual representation of children captured at a specific moment and in a particular situation. The photographic evidence of children in wartime Krakow is sparse. The few snapshots that do exist of Jewish children in Krakow are especially important to show the children as individuals. The child on the cover of my book is Fred Finder, who is holding his mother's hand. I was not able to learn anything more about Fred's fate during the Holocaust, um, but his image remained with me. And the patterns of persecution and the range of experiences that I write about in the book also reflect what Fred and many other Jewish children endured. What does your book teach us about trauma? Jewish children went through a series of traumatic events that undermined their feeling of safety. Um, these, these events involved, for example, separation from family members at the beginning of the war, when many Jewish men, fathers, uncles, grandfathers, brothers, fled from Krakow towards Lviv, Lviv today, uh, hoping the situation would stabilize and that they would be able to return to their homes. So the loss of a loved one was followed by the loss of personal belongings to which children felt emotional attachment. Child survivors uh, would discuss this as traumatic events because loss of loved ones, loss of their possessions, their homes, marked a break in their lives, especially when the children were forced to leave their homes and enter the ghetto. So of course, witnessing violence on a daily basis, fear, uncertainty, threat to life, these were major triggers of distress. Trauma also arose from efforts to rescue children. So something that on the surface was a positive event because it was about rescue, right? But some children struggled with the feeling of being abandoned by their parents. And then other children in hiding um, faced neglect and hostility from the adults who were supposed to be protecting them. The, the way that children uh, responded to, to trauma, the situations causing immense distress is a major part of the book. A child's age, pre-war experience, family situation, all these played a role in how children responded. There were children, 
especially the youngest, who were often shielded to the extent possible um, from, from the danger around them. Other children developed a sense of guilt for such things as even chewing food when there was very little food um, for their families. Um, they felt guilt for even surviving a German raid uh, in the ghetto. Coping mechanisms uh, ranged from engaging in what children do in times of peace, and that is they fantasize, they play, form friendships, they rebel. Um, and children's coping mechanisms also extended to adopting uh, techniques to survive in times of great danger. And that is being vigilant, taking on roles of breadwinners for families, becoming guardians of other children. Children were torn by many emotions, have anger, fear, anxiety, sadness, disgust. They often did not even know how to name these emotions and what to do with them. They rarely had anyone to help them deal with these emotions and explain the circumstances uh, to them. How did you locate the primary sources you used? Did you interview any, interv in any individuals personally? The most important for my research were written and oral accounts of survivors. I analyzed immediate post-war testimonies submitted by child survivors, by their surviving parents, and by witnesses. Many of such accounts were recorded for the Central Jewish Historical Commission in Poland soon after the war. The extent, um, I mean, the content and the, the, the level of detail in these accounts really varies. Other immediate post-war accounts consisted of texts that child survivors wrote in children's homes about their wartime experiences. I also listened to hundreds of oral histories of child survivors. I read memoirs uh, by child survivors and by adult survivors. At times, one survivor submitted several accounts, testimonies, which allowed me in those cases to compare the accounts look for patterns and extract additional information. I, you, 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 you asked if I recorded my own testimonies with survivors and the, the answer yes, is yes. Um, to me, there was a dilemma in asking a Holocaust survivor to relive his or her experiences and to retell them to me. As a researcher, I came in I collected their information and I left. But the survivor not only had to share the painful memories with me, but also he or she had to remain with those memories that have just been excavated from memory. So my approach has been to record a survivor's testimony only when I had no other sources from that person. One aspect of uh, recording survivors' histories that in some way mitigated my dilemma was the social aspect of the meeting. Especially when I was meeting with survivors in Israel, it was never only about telling the story. 
but rather about meeting with someone from the same cultural milieu, sharing a meal together and discussing other things, uh, often in Polish, the language that was dear to many of the survivors uh, with whom I spoke. The, and I, I emphasize in this response to your question, oral and written histories, um, because they, what the children provide in them are memories, their assessments of what transpired, what the children witnessed, what they felt, what they thought at the time. And this is the type of information that I was most interested in and something that cannot really be gleaned from other types of uh, official sources or from uh, sources by adults. Can you comment on the origins of the Plashu camp? How did it come to be created? The Plashu camp um, was created in response to German legislation in, the in 1942, in fall 1942, about liquidation of ghettos in the Krakow district. Uh, and, um, in and in response to uh, orders to concentrate Jewish workers in camps. So Płaszów was one of three ulogs, so camps, work camps uh, for Jews in Krakow. The camp was erected in a Jewish cemetery uh, that the Germans ordered to be destroyed for that purpose, to create a camp for Jews. This camp uh, assumed different functions during its, during its existence. It was a labor camp in the beginning, uh, when, it was, when, it, when it was created in, in fall 1942. In 1944, January 1944, it became a concentration camp, a transit place, a prison, a site of murder, mass murder, and a site of mass burial of victims. How similar or different were children's experiences in the Plashu camp relative to other concentration camps, labor camps, and transit camps during the Holocaust? And I have to say that in terms of Plashuf, uh, the presence of so many children there was rather exceptional. As I mentioned, Pwashov was a labor camp for Jews until January 1944, when it became a concentration camp. So by definition, only those Jews who were deemed as able-bodied could enter the labor camp. And yet, after March 1943, when the German authorities liquidated the Krakow ghetto, um, and after May 1944, when a major deportation of Jews from Pashup took place, uh, there were an estimated um, few hundred children in the Pashup camp. The presence of children in Pashup, both open presence and clandestine, was possible because of who entered the camp in its early phases. These were Jews from the Krakow ghetto, some of whom managed to smuggle in their children. Some of the children identified themselves as older than they were in reality. And some parents who held more advantages of positions in the camp 
managed to secure permission for their children to live openly in the camp. So these are some of the reasons why there was a relatively larger presence of children in the Pashov camp, which was not something that happened in other such sites. To this extent, perhaps. Yes. How similar or different were children's experiences in Krakow during the Holocaust vis-a-vis children's experiences in other Jewish communities that perished in the Holocaust? Certain stages of persecution, uh, such as marking of Jews, dispossession, ghettoization, deportation, annihilation, were experienced by children in Krakow and elsewhere in Poland or other countries. The experiences of Jewish children in various locations, regions, cities, villages, um, is still not well known. And in terms of Poland, we have, a, we have more documentation from Warsaw, especially from the Onek Shabbat archive and from the Łódź ghetto. For many years, our main source of information about Jewish children's experiences during the Holocaust were anthologies with accounts by children or about children. And another source were memoirs by child survivors. And of course, these are invaluable sources because they present the individual perspective and individual experiences of a survivor. What we still need are scholarly works, histories that focus on or that incorporate what children's, what children in particular endured in specific places or regions. You asked about Krakow and how different or similar it was. I have to say that Krakow had a fairly well-developed system of child welfare. Early on during the German occupation of Krakow, Jewish leaders understood that they had to present themselves as economically useful to the German authorities. They also wanted to uphold a particular image of Jews in Krakow. What that meant was that Jewish leaders tried, tried to remove Jewish children from the German site by placing them, placing the children in institutions created specifically for them. One of the major claims in the book is that the survival of Jewish children in Krakow required a strategy of concealment, deception, even semi-legality. The Krakow ghetto was much smaller than Warsaw, for example. In Krakow, the smaller size of the ghetto and the fact that until December 1941, Jews who entered the ghetto were from Krakow or from the city, that played a major role because the Jews managed to transfer, to replicate, and to create new networks of assistance to children. So children were not as visible in the streets of the Krakow ghetto as they may have been in other ghettos. Um, that did not have such well-developed and funded 
child-centered institutions. Can you comment on the origins and operations of CENTOS? Can you describe how it came to exist and the scope of its activities? CENTOS is short for the Central Organization for the Care of Children and uh, Orphans. This was a charity for Jewish children that was created in Poland after World War I. When many child survived, when many children uh, suffered various deprivations and were orphaned, the uh, the organization Santos uh, received support from many sources, including from abroad, from the New York-based American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, the JDC, which itself was founded in the wake of World War One in 1914. CENTOS provided assistance to families uh, with children in need, but primarily it operated a myriad institutions and programs for Jewish children. Before the outbreak of World War II, CENTOS was active in over 300 localities throughout Poland, which really speaks to how extensive this organization was. The Krakow branch of CENTOS uh, stopped its activities once Germany invaded Poland and, and then resumed the activities in May 1940. And by then, there were some nearly uh, 2,000 Jewish children who were in need of help. Many of them were refugees. So CENTOS was crucial to cater to the needs, to address the needs of, uh, of, of young people. The important thing to note about Tentos is that it served as a key provider and organizer of relief for Jewish children before the creation of the ghetto in Krakow. And it expanded its activities once the ghetto was created in March, 1941. In what ways did Krakowian Jews demonstrate resistance to German decrees? Before the, before, before, the creation, uh, before the creation of the ghetto, uh, Krakow Jews were ordered to leave the city between May and November 1940. The idea was uh, that Hans Frank, the governor of the general government had, and he was stationed, was, his headquarters were on the Wawel, historic Wawel Castle in, uh, in Krakow. The idea was to get rid of the Jews from the city, to make the city more uh, Jewish free, uh, more retain its Germanic origin that the Germans believed that the city had. And to do that, um, they had to get rid of the Jews. So the way that some Jews resisted was by sending petitions, applications to the German authorities um, in which they provide, in which they explained that uh, they had skills that were needed for uh, for labor, and in some of those petitions, they explained that their children needed assistance, that they had young children that couldn't travel somewhere else. So we see the use of child of of, of the children's um, situation to prove to the Germans the need to stay in the city. So this is one way. Also, Jews in Krakow 
repeatedly resisted um, the orders to leave the city. They stayed. They wanted to stay in, in the surroundings that they knew, in their homes, with their families, with their, with their relatives, with their friends, and um, having the networks that they were used to. So this was a major form uh, of resistance. You quote the words of Jerzy Biernacki, a non-Jew, who wrote in his diary that Germany's action against Jews was acknowledged as a major event in Krakow. Who was Jerzy Biernacki? What can you tell us about him and his life? Can you comment on the significance of his diary as a source? Can you contextualize this observation? That is an excellent question, and I don't do not have a good answer to that. Jerzy Biernacki was a non-Jewish Pole in Krakow who wrote his diary at the time of what he what he observed, uh, what was going on in the city. Some of those things were more mundane. Some of those things, some of the things that he wrote about in his entries, uh, were very significant, such as the such as the piece that I quote in my uh, in my book about his observation of, um, of the expulsion of Jews in Krakow. In terms of who Jerzy Bernatsky was, and I do not have much information about him, I found his memoir in a collection of memoirs of, of non-Jews, of Polish non-Jews, uh, that are held at the archive of modern records in Warsaw. What forms of play did Jewish children engage in during this time? What constituted toys for Jewish children at this time? I would like to begin by saying that play is a natural activity for children. And during the Holocaust, play allowed some children to focus on ordinary activities, to shift their attention from the deprivation and the suffering to find outlets to express themselves and to express their emotions. Um, it also allowed them to reenact and process what they were experiencing. In the 1980s, George Eisen wrote a study about the phenomenon of play in the Holocaust that remains a very important study till, uh, till today to help us understand play uh, in times of this rampant violence and genocide. Uh, in terms of what children played, the children played by themselves, they played with other children. Uh, they, they, um, this for some, this was a way to cope with boredom. Um, for other children, play involved physical activity that also served as a way to release tension. Children played with uh, with the few possessions that they were able to bring with them um, before entering the ghetto. And those were really prized possessions um, and established a sense of continuity with memories of happier times. Toys were also imagined and constructed by children or by their parents. So a piece of cloth, cloth Soon to, that was soon together um, uh, to be presented as a doll. Uh, scrap of glass or wood also served as playthings. And it was up to the children to use their creativity to make toys such of, uh, out of such things. And finally, there were toys that are um, acquired uh, that were left behind by Jewish families who were deported from the ghetto. 
And what mattered in terms of play was also the spaces where children played. These were rarely the children's living, uh, living quarters, rather courtyards and streets were places where children congregated, often against their parents' explicit prohibitions. The Jewish leadership in the ghetto was also unhappy about children's presence in public spaces and complained about it. Uh, the Jewish leadership cited the public nuisance that children um, allegedly caused. But in fact, I believe that these statements were meant to confine children inside buildings, homes, institutions to protect them. How was clandestine education carried out among students? In what ways did education itself embody resistance? Education of children in the Krakow ghetto was not an organized endeavor. Children learned in groups or individually with tutors. There were discussions in the Jewish newspaper, the only media outlet allowed by the German authorities, about the value and the type of education for Jewish children in ghettos. In the Krakow ghetto, the German authorities tasked the Jewish council with creating and supporting Jewish schools. But the Jewish council was inundated with incurring other pressing costs and allocating you know, funds for and space for a school was simply not on their agenda. And besides, that would mean registering and collecting children in one place, something very dangerous for the children's safety. So children met in those uh, individual groups or, I mean, in, those, in groups or individually uh, to, to study in, in homes of the teachers or sometimes the tutors would come to the, child's, uh, to the child's home. And educating children outside the German purview contravened the official German policy. So every effort uh, of parents to ensure that their children learned meant resistance to German policy. And for the children, uh, education was a form of resistance in that it allowed the children to see a future for themselves. Yes. What kinds of writing appeared in the Gazeta Zhidovska? Can you speak about the significance of this publication? Yes. So I just mentioned the Jewish newspaper, Gazeta Zhidovska. Uh, it was it was the only paper created and allowed for Jews in the general government. It existed from summer 1940 to mid 1942. And it included information from various uh, locations in general government. And the types of information, the types of um, writings is, is, is extensive. So um, there's information about deaths that uh, there is information uh, for, um, for, for women on how to run a household, what to cook with the few available um, foodstuffs, uh, food items that, um, that they had. Um, there was a children's corner where children could uh, solve puzzles or they could write to the newspaper with their questions, with their stories. Uh, this was also a way for Jews throughout the general government to read between the lines to find out what was happening elsewhere in the general government. So of course, this is a propaganda, this was a propaganda tool, but on the other hand, it offers a lot of information about social life in ghettos and lo localities 
in the general government where Jews, uh, where Jews lived. You point out that ghetto conditions demanded that children mature more quickly than under normal conditions. Can you elaborate on this? Can you share any specific examples? Yes. So, of course, children were required to mature in an instant uh, in, in the ghetto. As I mentioned before, there were few, there, there were parents, uh, adults, uh, didn't often not explain the situation to the children. So the children had to find some way to understand what was going on on their own. Children also understood that they had certain responsibilities that they had to fulfill. And that involved, for example, caring for their for younger children while the parents uh, were drafted for, for labor. Uh, children, some children also understood or were pushed by uh, adults to assume new roles of breadwinners for their, um, for, their, for their families. And for that, for example, involved smuggling. So slipping out of the ghetto onto the so-called Aryan non-Jewish side uh, to barter for food uh, or buy food and then slip back undetected um, to their families to distribute the food or to sell it further. You allude to child smugglers as being independent, resourceful, and manipulative. You also refer to them as demonstrating courage and cunning. Can you comment on the virtue ethics one can learn from children in such situations? Can you go into more detail about the character strengths they demonstrated? This is a fascinating topic about this role uh, that children assumed of smugglers, of items, but also of other people. And here, maybe I can point to the example of Janka Warszawska, a teenager who became involved in smuggling with her sister. And then this was in the beginning when they entered the ghetto. And Janka had so-called good looks. She didn't look stereotypically Jewish. She knew Polish. She knew the geography of the city. Uh, she had this, um, uh, skills of, of, of bartering. And also she, uh, she knew that this was her responsibility, that she was responsible for her, for her, for her family. Um, and so she used those skills to exit the ghetto uh, in secret and then to enter back with the, with the goods. So her example shows that not every child could exit the ghetto, right? Um, but you also, a child also had to have certain appearance, um, but also certain skills in order to be able to do that. And both boys and girls were, Jewish boys and girls were involved in exiting the ghetto and then smuggling goods inside. You tell the story of Roma Liebling. The story that you relate is that her parents tried to give her a tranquilizer and put her into a suitcase, but her screams before the medication was administered were too much to bear. Can you say more about her and this story? Roma Liebling was a very young child during that time. She wrote about, she's a writer, um, she wrote about her experiences in a memoir, The Girl in the Red Coat. Uh, I believe that's the, that's the title. Um, and 
her this example that you that you just that you just mentioned shows the types of decisions choices that parents were forced to make. On the one hand, they wanted to to use the opportunity to save their child. On the other hand, um, they were confronted with a child crying, not wanting to part with them. So these are the these are the heart wrenching decisions that parents had to make at this time. You also allude to certain parents who put their kids in backpacks and under their coats. You stress that this was an emotionally wrenching decision. Can you elaborate? Yes. So this um, this occurrence uh, usually happened, and that happened uh, not usually, but that happened at the uh, towards the end of the existence of the ghetto in March 1943 during the liquidation, when parents realized that the only way to save their children was to smuggle them with them into the Washov camp. And how to do that? Well, some children were dressed to appear as adults. Um, some of them were put in those backpacks or they were hidden under coats and in this way smuggled into the camp. What kinds of frictions and tensions emerged when whole families hid together? We usually think about hiding um, of Jews as hiding outside ghettos or camps. Um, but what I write about in my book as well is about individual children, but also family units hiding together inside the camp to avoid actions, German raids, deportations. And so, of course, this was a major endeavor to build a hiding spot um, in conditions of great confinement and overcrowding in, in the ghetto to allocate necessities in a situation where there was such a lack of everything. Um, and so, of course, at times, parent, there, were, there was a lack of hiding places, very few hiding available hiding places, and on the one hand. And then, of course, not everyone could fit into the hiding place. So sometimes families had to split children hid in a different location and parents hid um, in, a, uh, in, a, in a different location. So there was a lot of stress and pressure uh, involved in, in finding hiding places um, and creating them for, for families. Of course, when we think about frictions and tensions, it's not only about when families hit together, but when strangers hit together. And when children uh, who entered a hiding space with adults, these children were seen as um, posing danger because they, you know, they could make a sound, they could cry, um, and all the Jews would be discovered. So there were tragic uh, events going on in those hiding places, such as um, mothers um, uh, covering their, their baby's mouth with pillows um, or with cloth to make them stop crying, and some of those children died. Um, some of the children hiding, older children hiding in the inside in those hiding places, recalled those events um, uh, as very as very tragic as, as very tragic. So these are some of the frictions and, and tensions of hiding. What was the Kinderheim? How did it come to fruition? 
After the October 1942 action in the Krakow ghetto, the Germans ordered the Jewish Council to gather the remaining children and to create a new institution for children, a Tagesheim, a daycare, a daycare center. This new institution relied on the experience that was gained in caring for children in extreme conditions, but it also differed from previous institutions that existed in the Krakow ghetto. The Tagesheim was created to collect children in anticipation of another action. This is how the staff understood it. And this is also how members of the Jewish underground understood this new institution to be. And they were right. Another individual you allude to is Anna Fjordstein. How much were you able to learn and discover about her? And can you share anything you can about her? Anna, I'm very glad that you Raise, raise this question uh, about this uh, about this individual Anna Feuerstein or Feuerstein. She was the director of the Jewish Orphanage in Krakow, an institution that was created in the first part of the 19th century by Jewish women in Krakow. Very little is known about uh, Feuerstein. Uh, we know from the work of uh, Karolina Przewrotska Aderet, who's a journalist and who wrote research and wrote a profile of, um, of Feuerstein. Uh, historian Martina Gronska Reyak uh, wrote about Feuerstein in her book about the history of the Jewish orphanage in Krakow and about the fate of its staff and children during the Holocaust. So, from the archival information that we do know, is that Feuerstein. Uh, was born in Eastern Galicia. She settled in Krakow with her husband, and both were both have dedicated their lives to children to, in the Jewish orphanage. During the deportation from the Krakow ghetto in October 1942, the Germans deported the children and their guardians to the Belgrade Killing Center. Feuerstein refused German offers to spare her life. She went to death to, with, her, with the children. So we are accustomed to, to the story of Janusz Korczak from the Warsaw Ghetto. But do we think about the fact that he was um, not doing all of the work of caring for the children alone? So in the case of Warsaw and, and Janusz Korczak, there was a woman, Stefania Wilczynska, who was key in, some of, in, the, in the efforts to, um, to care for children. And what we see in the case of Wilczynska and Feuerstein is that their legacies, histories, activities have been sidelined. But by looking at children's experiences, we can lift the histories of the various women and men um, from, from oblivion. You also allude to another individual named Bronja Brunner, and you share her testimony about the Kinderheim's unsanitary conditions. Can you share the contents of her testimony and can you contextualize her for us? Sure. Bronja Brunner was four years old when the war broke out. She moved with her family from Krakow to Bochnia with her mother and her siblings. Her father fled east. And I mentioned in the beginning, many men, uh, Jewish men fled east towards Lviv. That's what um, Bronja's father did. In 1942, uh, Bronja's mother sent her to Krakow to live with her aunt, um, Rosa Berger, on the Aryan side, on the non-Jewish side um, of the city. 
and Bronia was hidden in a, in a room uh, where her aunt lived. So her aunt was facing um, threats of denunciation, of discovery of this, of this child, um, of the Jewish child. And Rosa herself was Jewish, obviously, but she was living under a false identity. Um, but the, but having a, uh, hiding her, her niece posed extra um, additional difficulties. And so Rosa sent um, Bronya, the child, to the children's home in the Krakow ghetto. And this shows you the, the dilemmas, right, that, um, that, uh, that Jews faced and kind of the lack of options. What do you do? You know, you, what do you do when you can't care, when you are unable to care for the child because of threats of denunciation by Polish neighbors? You have to send the child back to the ghetto. Um, and Bronia was one of the few children who could give more information um, about, uh, about the Tagesheim, which she called Kinderheim, children's home. In, in her testimony, um, her aunt was able to remove Bronia from the children's home before the liquidation of the ghetto in March 1943. And she managed to find a way out, a smuggling route um, from Krakow to Slovakia and then to Budapest. And that is how Bronia, uh, Bronia survived. Throughout your book, you allude to child welfare well child welfare activists and the role that they played how did someone become one what kinds of activities would an activist engage in what roles would an activist play what character or personality traits would engender somebody to be ripe to become a child welfare activists can you share an example of what a person who became a child welfare activist would do in such a role? It is a, such a fascinating question. Um, there were, of course, professional staff such as Anna Feuerstein, Feuerstein uh, that I just discussed earlier. Um, and there were also activists, meaning individuals who took action to care for children. And they may, have been, may not have been necessarily educated as, um, as teachers, as educators uh, in, for, 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 for children. They assumed those roles because there was a need to help children, to protect them uh, in, um, in, in the ghetto, the types of activities they engaged in. So we have examples of, um, of teenagers, of teenage girls who created children's corners in the ghetto. And these were areas where children um, could be uh, could meet, uh, could learn something, could spend time together, perhaps even uh, share a meal. So this was not something that was organized in, by institution or an organization. It was a child activist, like a child, uh, an activist for the sake of children, right, who ran these um, uh, um, corners. We have also examples, for example, Harina Nelken. Harina Nelken wrote, um, wrote a memoir after the war that she recreated from her um, from a diary that she wrote. Um, and she described her efforts as a teenager, um, kind of uh, assuming the role of an educator of other children, but also of, um, of a person who was working in the hospital caring for underprivileged children. Um, so these are the extent, these are just some examples of who a child activist was 
and what it took to become one, initiative, creativity, empathy, um, and other skills and personality uh, traits. Can you describe the Grey House prison and the Kransuvka prison within Plashov? Yes. So earlier when you asked about the creation of Plashov, I mentioned that it was also a, a, a site of prison um, for, for Jews. There were two types of prisons. One was Kransuvka. This was an internal prison for, um, for, camp, for camp inmates and where they were held for minor infractions. And then there was the gray house that, that's the most important for my study because that is where uh, children, Jewish children who are discovered hiding on the Aryan side were brought in for questioning, for detention, um, for investigating. Uh, and that's also where Jews with foreign documents, including children, were brought in um, until they could be released. You quote Niusha Horowitz as saying, I had it good in Plashov. Why did she feel this way? Why was this so for her? Can you share her story? Niusha Horowitz um, what is uh, a survive, a child survivor from Krakow and of Kwashow, and she was on, and she and her family were on the Schindler's list. Um, Nusha and her brother Richard entered the Kwashow camp, and Nusha um, both Richard provided a post-war testimony to the Shoah Foundation. Nusha also, and but this quote that you um, uh, that you referenced comes from Nusha's post-war, immediate post-war account that she submitted to the Central Jewish Commission. And in it, she said, I had it good in Pashul. And this could be misconstrued to mean you know, that, she had, that she had a positive experience in Pashul. Of course, she did not. She, she, had, she did not have a positive experience. She was persecuted there and in fear of her, her life, just as all the Jews um, in the camp. But what she meant was that um, in comparison to what happened um, to what happened later, um, when, when she was sent to Auschwitz, um, she had a a her conditions were better in in Pashov. She was still under the protection of her of her parents. She could remain with her parents. Her father um, uh, had a an considered what well, was considered an advantageous position in the camp, which gave him some leverage to protect his children. At the beginning of chapter six, you tell the story of Ella Rice. Can you share the significance of her story? Can you put Ella Rice and her story in context for us? Ella Rice was a very young child um, during, uh, during the Holocaust. And I share her story because it highlights some of the patterns of persecution, but also survival strategies. Um, that were pursued on behalf of children, very small children, such as, uh, such as Ella. So Ella was taken by her nanny, a non-Jewish Polish nanny. And here the, we, we see the role of some non-Jews as protectors, as aid givers, rescuers of other of, 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 of Jews, and the role of pre-war help, people who had connections um, to Jews. Um, so her pre-war nanny took her with her um, 
um, elsewhere uh, to, to protect her for the time being. And then they returned to Krakow. They lived with the nanny's family, but then they feared denunciation in October 1942 by a neighbor. So it shows you another um, you know, threat to protecting, rescuing Jewish, uh, Jewish children uh, that some non-Jews faced, and that is um, denunciation by the non-Jewish Polish people, their neighbors. And so um, the parents uh, had to, uh, who were hiding elsewhere, uh, Elizabeth's parents who were hiding elsewhere, had to take the child um, with them to Warsaw, which was considered safer um, for them at the time to live under false identities. Uh, eventually in 1944, uh, the Rices uh, returned to Krakow and from there they were able to arrange to be smuggled uh, to Slovakia and from there to Hungary. How did human smuggling networks work? For example, the Kalb network, how did it work? How did it function? How did it operate? Can you share something about this phenomenon in terms of its logistics? This is one of the most fascinating stories that I came to learn in the course of doing this research. And I do hope that someone else will uh, do more in this realm. Um, the Kalb network, this, this, it's called the Kalb Network because it was um, started by Bencion Kalb. Bencion Kalb was a Jewish man from the town of Strzyzów in southeast Poland. And he and his family fled to the mountain area uh, at the beginning of the German occupation. And from there, Kalb fled to Kazmarok in Slovakia. Now, he left his fiance uh, in Poland. Uh, through various uh, routes, he discovered that uh, she was in the Bochnia ghetto near Krakow. And he arranged um, with, um, with, with a non-Jew to smuggle her out of Bochnia and to him in Kazmarok, Slovakia. Now, Clara Kolb, later became Clara Kolb, um, at that time, Clara Lieber, she relayed what was happening to Jews in ghettos. Um, about the situation, about the actions, the deportations. Um, and so Benzion figured that if he could save Clara, perhaps he could save other Jews as well. He began working with the, it's called the Working Group. It's a Slovak, it was a Slovak Jewish resistant or, or resistance organization um, in procuring uh, funds for, for to pay smugglers, mountaineers, uh, for for ticket for train tickets for you know all these sorts of things that you that you need in order to uh, in order to run this kind of uh, um, a rescue mission and in this way by cooperating with a variety of of, of, of people um, the Cal network managed to save around um, two hundred Jewish children and many more uh, uh, Jewish Jewish adults but the Cal network. Um, did not do everything like I said by itself, but of course it cooperated with the, with the Slovak-based working group, um, but also in Poland with members of the Council for Aid to Jews, Zygota, um, uh, and with select Polish, uh, Polish non-Jews uh, who lent their trucks, who uh, served as guides 
um, for Jews from Krakow to the mountain area in Zakopane, and then for the people from the mountaineers um, who, who live there uh, to, to, guide, um, to, guide, to guide the Jewish groups uh, across the mountains uh, into Slovak territory. You devote some modest attention to life on the streets of Aryan Krakow. You give the examples of Janka Warszawska, Henrik Meller, and Abraham Blim. How did they make ends meet, and what do their stories and experiences teach us? Those were the so-called street children, and they ended up on the streets of Krakow uh, at different points and for a variety of reasons. So for Abraham Blim, he made the decision as a young child to leave his family and, um, and try to survive uh, on his own. For Henrik Meller, um, he, that meant he ended up on the streets when his aunt was arrested and, um, and he had no place to go to, he had no home. So he, he was left on, left on his own on the streets. For Janka Warszawska, um, and I mentioned her earlier, as a, as a smuggler of goods and people, her family was forced into the Prashov camp and Yanka and her sister remained on the so-called Aryan non-Jewish side of Krakow. But they faced, all of them faced immense difficulties in terms of where do you, where finding a place to, to sleep, um, uh, getting food, uh, getting, getting money, working, uh, also, uh, threats to, you know, they're Jewish, right? Especially boys, Abraham Blim, Henrik Meller. Um, these were Jewish boys who were circumcised. At that time in Poland, like in pre-war Poland, um, boys were, it was not customary to circumcise boys. So Jewish boys were instantly recognizable. Um, but as I explained in, in, in the book, uh, both, uh, both Abraham and, and Henrik, um, developed these, um, these ways to survive by banding together with other boys, by engaging in selling of you know, newspapers and cigarettes and, and smuggling and traveling on trains to different, uh, to different places, which you, know, you think about it, it's so dangerous, it was so dangerous for them to do that, but they did that in order to support themselves. And of course, Abraham and Henrik were, were, were caught, but they were caught because they were, um, you know, children uh, on the streets, right? And so they were caught and placed in a um, in a in a reformatory for um, for boys, um, and both of them survived. Yanka survived, but she, because she had no other options, no place to go to, and this shows you the loneliness of these children. Even as they struggled to survive on the streets, they were so immensely lonely um, that Yanka um, entered. She she brought, she smuggled herself in into the Poishov camp uh, because she had no place to go to. You point out that in February 1943, Tadeusz Severin received an order from his superior to establish a Krakow branch of the Council for Aid to Jews, the Krakow Zegota. Its aim was to consolidate and coordinate help for Jews and include in those endeavors members of different parties, the clergy, social workers, and other individuals. Can you comment on the challenges that the Zegota faced? Can you describe the scope of its activities? 
The Council for Aid to Jews, um, Krakow branch, began to operate on March 12, 1943, so a day before the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto. They had very little time to prepare hiding places, to identify uh, children and adults, Jewish children and adults, uh, who could be saved uh, from, from the ghetto. The Krakow branch did not have a children's section. You know, we know about the Council for Aid to Jews in Warsaw, and we know about the activities of Irina Sandler and the children's section that she ran. Krakow did not have such a section. Um, we, the in terms of challenges, we know about the growing need um, of, uh, for, for, for funds, for, for um, necessities uh, of Jews who managed to find hiding places uh, throughout the Krakow region. And so what this shows us is that Jews were in hiding, that there was a, um, there was a large, uh, a relatively large number of Jews who managed to hide, find hiding places and they were in need of help. Uh, the Council for Aid to Jews had insufficient sources, uh, resources um, and faced growing needs, as I said. So these were the main, um, the main challenges, um, but we do know that their, their assistance was indispensable. And I write about some of the families, Polish families, who were hiding uh, Jewish children and were receiving assistance from, uh, from uh, Zagota in order to be able to purchase food or um, cl and, and clothes uh, for the children. Uh, so, and another very important thing that I want to point out about the Council for Aid to Jews, Zagota and Krakow, but also it applies to, uh, you know, to Warsaw, is that this was a joint initiative of non-Jews and Jews. So in the case of Krakow, we have Miriam Hochberg uh, Mariańska, uh, who was this um, activist in this, uh, in, this, in, this, in this group, and was also a courier who was traveling from place to place as a Jewish woman under disguise um, to check on the children, to see how they were doing, to see what they needed to deliver, um, to deliver funds. So in this case, we see, as in, as in the case of Benzion Kalb, we see the emergence of Jews as rescuers of other Jews. You write that luck and skills did not guarantee rescue. Can you share any tragic examples of this where luck and skills did not guarantee rescue? Uh, yes, um, of course. Um, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think about specific uh, specific examples, but the important important thing to say here is that we know about um, we know about certain stories because someone uh, survived to tell them, and for the unsuccessful stories of of of, of hiding of, of rescue when someone was denounced or uh, murdered, uh, we don't know these stories right unless there was a witness um, to tell them. But what we do know is that. Um, informing on Jewish, I mean, on Jews in hiding and informing on the Polish people who hit them was rampant. This was um, uh, rescuers uh, often say in their, um, in their accounts that what they feared the most were their own neighbors 
Um, so this already shows the, the dangers associated um, with, uh, with hiding on the, um, on the Aryan side. When it comes to you know, what happened and some of the tragic examples, um, well, one story, um, one story that comes to, comes to my mind right now, and this is something that I also describe, is um, Anita and Bernard Kempler, uh, two small children, um, Anita Kempler, later Anita Lobel um, wrote about uh, her experiences uh, in a memoir, No Pretty Pictures, A Child of War. And she was she and her brother were protected by their pre-war nanny. Um, they lived with her, uh, they faced denunciation, they had to enter the ghetto, then they were smuggled out of the ghetto. They were placed, um, they, they entered an, uh, an, an institution, uh, kind of like a shelter for, for, for women with children that was run by the Albertine nuns. In, uh, in Krakow. And in 1944, they were denounced um, in, that, uh, in, that, uh, in that shelter, um, not by the nuns, obviously, but by, um, by, by, by uh, another woman, woman who was hiding there. And so what happened to the children and, the, and their nanny, um, they were placed in, uh, in the prison, they were questioned, investigated, and the nanny was was uh, let go, but the children, because they were accused of being Jews, they were transferred uh, to the Pashov camp. And afterwards, uh, they endured a host of you know, uh, they, they endured a death march and uh, incarceration in another camp. Uh, both managed to survive, um, but it shows you the danger, the dangers that they faced, and the consequences of um, of denunciation. You have a quotation um, that struck me where you write as follows, complicity in the persecution and murder of Jews was, a, was thus a multi-layered phenomenon. You write, collaborators were feared by some and welcomed by others. They aroused fear because of their presence and modes of operations and their modes of operation engendered, endangered the work of the Polish underground exposed helpers and their Jewish charges compromised the solidarity and honor in which the Polish nation took pride and facilitated terror. At the time, collaborators enjoyed the social approval of many of their compatriots. Can you say more about this? A lot of what you, um, you know, for what you just we just said, I think um, also emerged from the stories that I that I mentioned about this threat the, that the collaborators or or you know we can divide the collaborators people who are working for the German authorities because they were forced to do that because they chose to do that um, because they had certain incentives because they harbored jealousy um, or had some scores to settle with um, uh, they thought they had some scores to settle with Jews so there were many reasons why people, some people, some Poles chose to uh, collaborate and become complicit in the persecution, uh, in the persecution of, um, of Jews. Um, one thing that I would like to um, say here, and that I also write about is that, um, you know, this was a choice to inform on, um, on, a, on a Jewish person uh, in hiding or on a suspected uh, Jewish person to inform uh, or to blackmail to um, a, a Polish a rescuer, it was the choice. So for example, I looked at a collection 
at a collection of notes, letters that were sent to the German authorities informing on Jews. And one of such letters struck me deeply because it, re it related to a, a woman and her, a Jewish woman and her child who were living in, um, who were living um, in Krakow, uh, but before uh, the, the ghettoization order applied to them. So they were still able to live uh, outside the ghetto. Um, and just the language that was used um, uh, to refer to these uh, to these uh, to these uh, to to these two Jews, and um, it's it's you know I will not talk about it here, but you you can definitely um, view more in, in in the book and in the in in the sources. Um, but I just want to stress that it was a choice and that it was widespread. It was a big problem. Collaborators were such a big problem that it was um, that phenomenon was mentioned repeatedly in reports of the Polish underground and uh, in discussions about how to deal with them. Yeah, in fact, you, you mentioned the story in the book of Amelia Heller and her mother. You note that they met a Jewish woman who it turns out was working for the Gestapo. The only way this woman could survive was by denouncing other Jews. Can you share any additional details about this story? Yes. So. Uh Obviously, this is a highly charged uh, topic when we discuss uh, the complicit, the collaboration of, uh, of of some Jews and the reasons um, why they why they engaged um, in informing on other Jews. We have to understand that uh, they were still Jews being marked for persecution, and some of them may have believed that that they would be protecting, saving their, their own lives and their, and their loved ones. And they were put in that position um, by the circumstances uh, during the Holocaust. There is a book in Polish um, that examines this topic of, you know, were these, were they Jewish collaborators? What did they engage in? And the book is, um, I, I, I'm blanking out on the on, on, I'm blanking out on the topic, but it does examine um, these issues. And of course, I remembered it. <laughs> it is by Alicia Yarkowska uh, Natkaniec, and this is uh, forced cooperation or betrayal. And she examines cases of collaboration of Jews in occupied Krakow. This is an entire study devoted to this um, to this topic. If you don't mind me asking, did you experience any vicarious trauma as a researcher in collecting these stories? Why or why not? And how did you cope with it? This is a very interesting, very important question that you raised that I think that we don't discuss as much. Um, and vicarious trauma, of course, secondary trauma from collecting histories and reading about children's suffering, there, there is a range of emotions that accompanies research on the Holocaust, genocide, mass atrocities. You know, this research involves uh, reading, but also analyzing, writing, and speaking on this difficult history. I work with personal and secondary sources on the Holocaust on a daily basis. I think that it is crucial to acknowledge that as a historian, 
um, you know, as a historian, an individual, or human being, I am repeatedly exposed to narratives of suffering and to, um, I mean, and to imagine, I mean, and and to imagining cruelty, and I am affected by the history that I uh, that I study. Um, of course, I am affected by the information. Um, how can I not be? There is a responsibility, I think, in collecting, interpreting, and sharing histories of persecution and, and violence. The question of how studying history, especially history of uh, genocide, uh, affects the historian, that is a controversial topic. And in fact, um, last year, I think, there was a very interesting article that appeared in, I believe it was the New Republic, that explored how historians um, uh, that explored the, 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 the notion of historians being traumatized uh, by, by history. And I highly, I highly recommend it um, to read that one. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And I also appreciate the erudition that went into this book and the detailed and thorough conscientious answers you provided to the questions we discussed in this dialogue today. As we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on now or next as your current or subsequent project? I am working on a book with a co-author, my co-author, Elizabeth Barry White, who is a historian at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. The title of the book is Counterfeit Countess, the Jewish mathematician who rescued Poles during the Holocaust. The book is scheduled to be published in 2023 by Simon and Schuster. And this book, Counterfeit Countess, turns the attention to the persecution of Poles, non-Jewish Poles, during World War II. It traces the life and activities of a Polish Jewish woman, a mathematician and philosopher by training, who assumed a false identity as a Polish countess. She joined the Polish underground and she worked for the Polish welfare institution in Lublin. And in these roles, uh, she was helping prisoners, Polish prisoners in the Majdanek camp. And the story is based on the woman's memoir. That sounds amazing. I wish you the best of luck with the project and everything that goes into bringing such an idea from idea into actuality. Thank you so much, Ari. I really enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for your insightful questions. Thank you. It was my humble honor to talk with you today. Thank you for everything that you shared with us. And most of all, thank you for producing such an extraordinary book. And I use the, extra, the, the adjective extraordinary with the full intention of the meaning of the word extraordinary. This is a really marvelous book, and I recommend it to all our readers and all our listeners. Um, to our listeners, this has been Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network podcast. I have been in dialogue with Dr. Joanna Sliwa. Joanna Sliwa is a historian at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, the Claims Conference in New York City. 
we have been discussing her book, Jewish Childhood in Krakow, A Microhistory of the Holocaust, published by Rutgers University Press, 2021. Thank you.